You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 5720 Ridge Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. We're gathered to adore Jesus. We're gathered to worship God. And sometimes that those, those big words seem a little intimidating for people. It's hard to get to that place where... Uh, you can adore something. And I think that's especially hard as an American because I think that the United States sometimes asks us to adore it. And you might feel resistant to that very idea. You know, the U.S. is like a, I think you could say a military superpower. Has, one, has like the largest economy of any country in the world. Um, one of the wealthiest countries. A lot of... a uh, at least for now, a lot of diplomatic power. And it's, I think it's easy to argue it's the most powerful country in the world. Um, biggest economy, biggest military, most diplomatic capital. And I think that makes, like I was saying, following Jesus and doing the gospel hard because Jesus is bringing a sort of anti-worldly message. And it's an upside-down message to this kind of idea um, that's given to us. You know, in a nutshell, Jesus, um, God, through Jesus, God becomes human, dies, resurrects, and then this ultimate power over humans is eliminated, death. So if you put it another way, God becomes human to leave, to, to leave earth as the sole power to be worshipped and followed and, and obeyed. And even, even death obeys. So God leaves earth as the supreme power to be worshipped and reassures us again, no, no gods above me. And you could say the whole story of the Bible is about the supremacy of God over the world and more importantly over evil. And then our job as Christians is to worship and submit to God as ruler above all rulers, Lord of lords, King of kings, over all powers, whether that means ourself, our government, or our economy. And I think it's hard for Americans to do that because we could be tied to the nation's power and we conflate that with God. And I'm, I, 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 I kind of, I, I smell these things. I pick up on them real carefully. Um, and maybe some of you do too, because you're a part of Circle of Hope. So we, we kind of hammer this point all the time. And so when I, see, when I, when I uh, get an aroma of like uh, some sort of idol worship of some kind, you know, it stresses me out a little bit. Like, why did you have my kids say, say the Pledge of Allegiance? You know, how did she come home more sinful than when she left? You know, this is, this is how I think about it, right? And, well, I, there's a million reasons how that could have happened, by the way. Not just pledging allegiance. Or maybe we're repulsed at the endless pursuit of American power, and we want to deteriorate power, period. And so it's hard to worship a powerful God or follow a God who intends to reign supreme. So we might have difficulty because... Can I get the next one? On one hand... We worship other gods, 
like, let's say, the United States or something else. It might be hard to worship for that reason. It might be hard to be a Christian for that reason. But also, we, we, think, we, we might think worship assigns too much power, and we're not interested in assigning power. Right? So those are, those, are, those are broad generalizations about two groups of people which you may not conveniently find yourself in one or the other. So that's not really what I'm trying to do. It's not, it might be two poles of a spectrum, but it may not be either. This is just the idea that I'm working with right now. Is that, is that cool? I, I personally fall into the second group more. I am kind of suspicious of people in power, uh, suspicious of authority. And so I can have some challenges. But, but a reason that I worship God is because I know God's power and authority and reign over the world is completely different than the way that worldly powers try to collect power and authority. Again, it's an upside-down message, upside-down. It's because instead of God reigning over us, God is with us, among us, reigning for us, as in on behalf of us and for the world. God isn't just benevolent. God's means are also benevolent. God becomes human in order to show us that God loves us. But God isn't weak. God is worthy to be worshipped. But we not only worship God, we relate to God. And thus, we're related to God. God is with us now, and we express God to the world. And we have that responsibility. We have that honor. And that's something in which to boast. That's something to boast in. We then derive our pride and our sense of self from the one to whom we are related. But that actually means we have to have a sense of self and a sense of pride and something to boast in. You can see how tricky it is to follow God and to worship God and all of the, all of the hindrances that you find all of the encumbrances that you find as you're trying to do this. It is rather uh, countercultural, um, interpersonally and otherwise. I think it's hard to do that in a time and place because we frequently see the toxic results of arrogance, of overconfidence or pride. And we might think we need to uh, deny ourselves to be Christians. We deny ourselves, like the Bible writer says, in order to boast in Jesus, not just to diminish ourselves. That's the idea. We deny ourselves so that we can boast in Jesus and our relatedness to Jesus. So it's not just uh, ego crushing to be a Christian. It's ego redefining. You're changing how you see yourself. You're changing your source of pride, your source of confidence, your, your source of self, even. I want to resist that false humility that I think people who are, and, and especially 
people who are conscious of their societal privilege. That false humility that people that are conscious of their societal privilege collect, you know, from their gender or their race or their nationality or so on, that, that, that they often exhibit. It's hard to worship if you think God is just mimicking the power of the world. It's hard to be proud of how you relate to God if you think the community that helps facilitate that relationship, that's the church, that's all of us, if we think that community that helps facilitate that relationship is just succumbing to the power of the world, or you think your pastor is just succumbing to the power of the world. If you think like Julie's like Trump or something like that. You know, I, I, I don't think any of you think that, but... I mean, how could you think that? But if, if, you, if you have that idea, right? And to be honest, sometimes it, it, the church fails in that regard. It's clear that it does. And we see countless examples of it, just like in the Houston Chronicle this morning, right? Some of you may have seen the story where the um, 700 counts of sexual abuse over 20 years in the Southern Baptist Convention. So here we go again, right? So, if you're cynical, your cynicism is uh, warranted. So sometimes we fail in that regard. Sometimes the church disappoints you. Sometimes your pastor does too. But we don't have to. That's not a foregone conclusion. And you don't have to either. So I hope you feel empowered because God is indeed with us and we are vessels that can reveal God to the world. And we aren't the exclusive or the elected ones. We're not the only ones. And it's not like we can't learn from others either, specifically in this um, occasion here as Circle of Hope. But you have something and we have something that, to offer that God gave us. And we're anointed in our own right. God is with us. God is with you personally. And that means something. And I mean you. I feel like I wanna, I wanna look at each of you in the eyes so you know it's not just the person next to you. Or so you don't just say, yeah, I know. Because some of you are thinking that, yeah, I know, I know. But not really me. At least that's how I think about it. I think that's true for all of us. So let's keep saying it. And let's keep believing it because it's really hard to internalize your own sense of value, especially if you think that a sense of value and a sense of self is wrong. And you in turn believe that self-deprecation is a holy humility. I wanna keep sharing with you so that you have a sense of honor because you're related to God. We don't have a lot of honor in the United States. Honor is a big deal where I come from. And Central PA, yes, honor is a big deal there, but also um, Egypt. So, you have a sense of honor because you're related to God. Too, too often, we depict this mighty and powerful God that is, as one that pours down judgment and wrath on us. Have you seen this before? In Circle of Hope, we rewrite the hymns that have that language in it. And we confuse every newcomer that comes because they're going along with the song and then it changes from the way they used to um, sing it. That's okay. We'll, we'll do it twice. 
so you can so you can get with it. Um, but the Gospels are telling a different story about God than one that just pours down wrath and judgment. It's one that starts with Jesus. God came to us to be like us, to be with us, to love us, so that we might share that everlasting love and light with a world full of hatred and darkness. The writer of the Gospel of John begins this story, this story of Jesus, the biography of Jesus, the fourth Gospel, with this amazing prologue. It's one that retells both the story of creation and the story of the Incarnation. Here, in my opinion, the author is showcasing both the power and might and authority of Jesus and how special it is that he became one with us. Do we have John 1, 1 through uh, 14? It's two slides. So when you sign up to read this in a second, just anticipate two slides. Okay, so someone out loud. Go go ahead, Phil. You're such a great, you're such a great volunteer. reading that, Phil. Some of you are familiar with this passage, of course. Um, this was a slightly different translation, so that you would, uh, so that it would uh, kind of pique your interest again. You'd think about it in a new way. Sometimes it's helpful if you're a big Bible reader to just use an unusual translation, just to shift your mind a little bit from what might be just route. So the prologue here sets up the entire gospel, and one of its goals is to showcase the divine presence and power of Jesus. The word, Jesus, has been here since the beginning, alongside of God, with God, beside God, present with God, all those ways you could say that. And it moves us to consider the humanity of God despite expressing the magnitude of God. This sort of formula the humanity of God and the divinity of God will be later made into a formula, a doctrinal formula, uh, during the Council of Nicaea, um, where Jesus' divine and human nature are more fully explained with uh, contemporary ontological terms that are canonized forever for us. So that's, that's interesting. Um, but it's fair to say that the formula that we have 
about the God-man, Jesus. Isn't that clear, right, when, when the gospel is being written right now? Um, you can see it right here. And you can, e- e- even how we read it is informed by our tradition. So how we understand Jesus today is informed by how we came to understand Jesus as a church. And so we have this idea that informs how we read it. But otherwise, this was rather confusing. The text was probably much more mysterious when it was written. And John, um, writing divinely inspired words, may not have known exactly what this meant. I think that's, I think that's fair to say. And this powerful passage is incredibly influential in shaping our conception of God, and, 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 and the clarity of the later councils appropriately informs how we read the passage. The writer is telling us that Jesus is divine, a God, but more than that, Jesus is God. Moreover, Jesus is there since the beginning. Jesus is a co-laborer in all of creation. Jesus is elevated to the, to the, to the level of the creator of the world directly having agency in everything that has ever been made. And more than that, the word, the logos, is the source of light and life, penetrating darkness and death, not being overcome by evil or any darkness. John, the writer of the gospel, is using Greek and Jewish ideas in his opening Verses, And he's doing that because he's writing to a kind of Greekified Jewish people, Hellenized Jews. So he is using contemporary ideas for his time to appeal to his audience. The textual confusion that we have in some of the cases is rooted in his service to bringing this timeless truth to a societal context. That's what's happening here. So even though it's mysterious, it makes sense and it uses language that people that are reading this for the first time understand. It's using philosophy that they understand as well. And the clarity that we read this section of the text with now, again, is due not just to the writer himself, but to the application and the doctrine that is applied to this text well past its composition date. Nevertheless, John is writing in a way that speaks to his time and place, and he continues to do so when, I think in verse 7 or so, let's, get, let's, let's, let's go back there, in verse 7 or so, where he starts talking about this other person, John. John the Baptist. Or, uh, he, and, and he doesn't call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer here, it's just John. John, the writer of the gospel, is writing a sort of criticism against John the Baptist's offshoot of disciples that are around at the time. And here he's clearly setting apart John and Jesus. Jesus being superior, the word of God, John being sent by God. John testifies to the light, but Jesus is the light. As Augustine put it, um, or Augustine put it, John is truthful, Jesus is truth. John is the lamp, Jesus is the light. So he's doing that because some people are treating John the Baptist like a Messiah. So, in, in, in a very gentle way, he's, he's, he's maintaining some honor for John and moving on. So once again, John, the writer of the gospel, is writing to declare Jesus is the word and the final authority, a co-laborer in the creation of the worlds and of light, 
and John is merely making a way for him. John's uh, abasement is exalted. His, his, huma- his, his humility is exalted, or you might say his, his humiliation is exalted. But the world Jesus created, the home to which he belonged, rejected him and didn't know him. His own people, Israel, didn't know him. Jesus, in every expression, was a Jewish person. Came for the Jewish people first, and then to the Gentiles, right? That's what, the, that's what Paul says in Romans. And there's something heartbreaking about that. You can see at the end of uh, Matthew, Matthew uh, 23, where Jesus is uh, lamenting over how, how, how you, the, people I, the people that knew me, that hung out with me, now you're rejecting me. You're betraying me. You know, there's some symbolism in the betrayal of even Judas to Jesus because it represents such a bigger betrayal. But the writer continues, everyone that did know him and did accept him became his children. So something new is happening in the person of Jesus. A new sort of nation of people is being born. They became his children. These people, and that's us too, become the children of God because God is with them and God received them. Because the creator of the cosmos, the bearer of light, received them. And it's not because of their blood, it's not because of their flesh, it's not because of their heritage or their own earnest effort, it's because of God. You're only included because God included you. And then after all this exaltation of Jesus, huge lofty language for Jesus, the creator of the world, the light of the world, the life of the world, Here comes the kicker. First 13 verses, that's the shot. Here's the chaser. Verse 14, you guys know that, what I'm talking about when I say that? Only just a little bit, huh? Oh, Rosie knows more, okay. Let's get to the, the various verse 14s. The word became flesh and lived among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. The logos became flesh and pitched a tent among us. That's the next one. The word of God in all his power and glory, his authority and might moved into the neighborhood, made his dwelling place among us. God pitched a tent among us because the, the, the word is literally tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. He became God with us because the locus of the activity of God is Jesus himself. You know, before you had the tabernacle where God lived and dwelled and, and that's, the, that's the sign of God to the Israelites and they're traveling through the, to the wilderness and it's fire by day and, a, and a, sorry, a cloud by day and a fire by night. And now the, that, that tabernacle is with us and the locus of God's activity is Jesus right here. And it's a powerful image. What follows is even greater. And we all see him in his one-of-a-kind glory, like that of the Father, or as the uh, late Eugene Peterson, rest in peace, 
tells us, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. We saw it with our own eyes. We saw the glory with our own eyes. We related to the glory. We were born as children from it. Are you getting then the magnitude of God and God's personal presence in your life, that both things can happen, that God's presence in the world is both cosmic and both personal, right? It's both things. It's the biggest thing ever, but it's just for you too. So, my friends, that's what we boast in. That wonder and in that glory that God made God's dwelling place among us, that Jesus came to us to know us, to share with us, to bear to bear us as his children, as heirs to the promise of God, as one who would reject any worldly allegiance. We assign ourselves then to be bonded to him. It's something new and something old, here from the beginning and with us until the end. So boast in the fact that God is with us. Let's be a church and be a people who isn't ashamed of the power of God with us, of God being related to us, but rather one that shares in it and shares it. And this isn't an abstraction either. It's a lived reality. Because I know you're thinking, yes, I know that we saw Jesus in person because I know the story of the incarnation. I know the manifestation Y'all are thinking about epiphany, right, for this for these weeks. But we can be the lived and enacted reality of what might otherwise feel abstract. We can be a part of a body that allows the word to dwell here and to make a home among us, to abide in us now, to make an abode in us now. And that's what Jesus leaves his disciples with if you keep reading about 15 or 16 chapters into John. Abide in me as I abide in you. Make your abode in me as I make mine in you. God is with us now. God can be tabernacled here right now. This body of Christ can be the locus of the activity of God. God can pitch God's tent among us and we can be that tent, that abode. And we can demonstrate it in word Indeed, to be sure, we can say it with our mouth and we can do it with our bodies. And we should do both. We're forming a community that expresses it. The intimacy that we hold together, the closeness that we share, the truth and love that we offer one another is our, is our example of our tentedness. We show that God dwells among us by how we relate, but also by who we relate to. The peace and justice and compassion that we offer our neighbors and friends is further evidence of this incarnation. We don't boast in Jesus because we were born one way or the other, because we say the right things or because God, because God is dwelling among us. Right? That's why we boast, because God is dwelling among us. I started by saying it's hard. It's hard to be a Christian because it's hard for us to be proud of Jesus, not because of our shame, but because of the perversion of pride and boasting in the world, that the idea of being proud at all is hard. Because we can easily pledge allegiance to other powers or push away power in general. 
what we see here is a great and magnificent power of God, but also that God is with us, God is among us, and that means something. Can you hold on to that truth today? Can you receive the blessing that you're a child of God? That God and all of God's magnitude and glory and power, the Logos who created the cosmos, still chose to relate to you, to love you, to name you as a child? That there's no judgment or condemnation and there's no need to be ashamed? That feeling of shame that you might have, that uh, insecurity that you might have, that self-deprecation that you might hold so dearly, that's not holy. It's not of God. Reject it. And I have to tell myself that every day. Because it's easy to preach it. It's hard to believe it. I didn't have somebody that told me that. You know, there was no, uh, there's no like parental figure telling me that, or at least the one I wanted to. And so I have all sorts of other messages internalized in me, you know. So I have to keep reading like John 1 to get it, to rewrite the script, to come up with a new idea. It's hard to believe it. You're a child of God, the beloved of God. So receive that truth today. And don't think of it as a project that you have to do by yourself. Encourage one another. Edify one another. Exhort one another. Love each other well so that you know God loves you. That's the, that's the church. That's the work of the church. It's hard to do that sometimes. But if we do, I think it will be much easier to not be ashamed. So let's pray and do some talk back, shall we? Thank you, Lord, for being here and for being faithful and present to us. May we uh, not take for granted your presence with us. May you open our eyes so that we might see it in the world around us and in the people around us. May we remind each other of your presence. Amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.